Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zaki on the newest podcast from Idle Thumbs. Rob, I know you've been looking forward to this weekend because you'll finally be able to get all that sparrow racing done that you're, you know, so excited about lately. I can't hear enough about it. Yeah, uh, you know, when I when I first got into Destiny, uh, my immediate reaction was this is this is a fun game, and Bungie certainly know how to how to build a good shooter. Uh, but boy, I wish there were a hover motorcycle uh, racing game that I could play uh, with my Sparrow. <laughs> and lo and behold, uh, it is the season of miracles. Uh, Bungie <laughs> have introduced uh, Sparrow Racing into Destiny. And, you know, honestly, it's I don't think it's very good. Uh, the, the Sparrow itself is is not really that fun. It's kind of a necessary evil. Uh, that allows allows you to sort of deal with the structure of Destiny as this weird kind of like MMO FPS hybrid. Really, the, the the Sparrow is there just to get you from point A to point B really quickly across a big landscape that's really pretty, but full of a bunch of stuff that's totally irrelevant to what you're doing. So it's it's not like it's a particularly well designed vehicle uh, <laughs> with, with great controls. Nevertheless, it's you know it is content with a with a capital C. And uh, what's what's hilarious to me though is everyone is playing this, and it's basically just because there's I've heard tell, and I haven't looked too too deeply into this matter, uh, but I've heard there's very good uh, there are very good item drops uh, for those for those players who who play lots of sparrow racing, and so I, I have a suspicion that all these races are between these people who are kind of there involuntarily, uh, just out of pure obligation. And they're just sort of slogging through these races. And these are not short races, by the way, either. They're like three-lap races a- along a pretty big track. Um, and it's and the track is one of those things where it's sort of designed to screw you over at various points. It's like a, <clears throat> it's like a sure. miniature golf course. But everyone is doing it because there's this idea that if you just, if you just do enough sparrow racing, eventually you get a way better item. Uh, than you would get playing the game you want to be playing, which is Destiny the Shooter. I uh, feel like that's what the vanilla game of Destiny was before the Taken King. A lot of people, it seemed to me... Now, this is as somebody who's played Destiny a few times, and I don't remember a second of it. Like It's you know the only game I think I've played in the last few years where I just don't remember anything I did in it. And that was before the Taken King. It was before, you know, quote-unquote, the game got good. But it, it seemed to me like a lot of people were playing it, just out of obligation for a long time. You know, the first, like, six months of Destiny was like that, it seemed. And it almost sounds like Sparrow Racing is is bringing it back to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always a threat of that with any kind of loot chase game. Yeah. Because you're, you're sort of confusing motivations then, because people are eventually chasing the loot and chasing it to places they might not otherwise go with your game. Uh, and, you know, I've totally given into it. Because I've played a, a bunch of Sparrow races, and uh, I got a helmet. I got a sweet, uh, a sweet like red helmet with like, <laughs> like you know, wings coming off the side of it. It's great. It's like pure Rocketeer type stuff. Excellent. But <laughs> it's all it's all time spent away from the stuff I really want to be doing, which is like uh, you know, advanced difficulty strike missions with my friends, um, and of course, and of course, multiplayer, uh, where where I'm finally starting to hit my stride. Uh so I so my 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 kill death ratio has gone from uh truly a, abysmal uh places <laughs> and now it's you know after I've finally managed to 
climb to about an even kill death ratio and lately it's starting to nudge up into closer to two to one territory so it's it's really right. good and i'm I, yeah. I, i've had some great runs uh but you know it's 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 interesting uh because the addition of sparrow racing and the fact that i'm spending a lot of time uh sort of checking all these boxes in destiny because the experience of playing destiny uh destiny is very good at giving you daily stuff to do uh here's your <laughs> daily mission here's your daily strike uh here's a weekly nightfall strike which is almost like a almost like a raid but not quite uh and then here's the here's today's multiplayer mode uh that you should that you should all partake in and each time you you check in on those you get a special reward and that's kind of just raised some questions of like you know where where where's this game headed uh to an extent like at a certain point you're asking you know whether whether or not you're you're totally playing just because you really like the game or whether you're just <laughs> kind of conditioned to like hoover up those those rare resources the game is throwing at you and uh you know all this was going through my mind uh this week as as I read this piece uh at polygon uh by Daniel mm. Friedman about a a new item uh that's selling in destiny uh it's it's a it's it's a thirty dollar unlock that lets you instantly take a character uh, up to level twenty five which is the level you have to be at for to play all the Taken King content. And I think it also completely unlocks a, a subclass. I'm not sure if it unlocks access to a subclass or unlocks all the abilities in that subclass. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure of that difference. But uh, it, it's, so it's this, it's this post um, in, in Polygon about how this is kind of a, a dangerous step. Uh, there's, there's a bit of hand-wringing over... What this what this thirty dollar item uh, represents for the future of the game? It's, it's it, it was kind of interesting because the argument uh, that the argument that Friedman is making is that what they're basically doing is selling you a way to get around a crappy part of the game, and I kind of do agree in some ways because the, the <laughs> thing about Destiny is I'm max level, but that doesn't mean anything because I'm I still have not unlocked all the abilities for all the various subclasses of, of my of my character class. Which means I just have to play a lot of missions with these other subclasses, uh, which are really ineffective at first, because they have no abilities unlocked. And uh, so it turns into repeating a lot of the same raids, you, a lot of the same raids you've done, a lot of the same mm -hmm. missions, uh, just sort of unlocking these, these, these abilities to, to make your character viable. And the argument in this piece was, was basically that, you know, in the past, and if, and if, like Bungie were designing the game with like user experience in mind, they would be trying to solve that problem, right? That, okay, we've now sort of mandated that people have to spend hours and hours and hours uh, just plugging away at turning these subclasses into viable options. Uh, but instead of fix, instead of fixing the problem uh, now, now for $30, uh, half the price of a full price game, uh, <laughs> you can skip all that. And get a character instantly to level twenty five and open up an entire subclass uh and you know that at that point you're sort of in the territory of um you know what 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 are you incentivizing uh for your developers right like are are yeah. you sort of encouraging them to be like eh, screw it leave that leave that really grindy awful bit in because uh, we'll sell players a, a shortcut around it later which which is kind of how free to play works. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but is that what is that what we should want, or and, and is that what we should expect from a game like Destiny, which you know is a is, is a full price game? So I, I thought that was kind of interesting, um, you know, an interesting article 
that that I'm not sure I'm I, I I'm not sure this this item worries me as much uh, for the future of, of Destiny as it, it worries the author. But but I think it's an interesting argument that just the existence of this item can indicate a shift in thinking. Yeah, absolutely. The first thing I thought of when when I read this piece and and you know when you brought it to my attention was a piece I had read long ago, ten years ago or more even, on somebody who used a sort of a. Uh, uh, whatever it's called in, in world of Warcraft, when somebody basically does all the auto leveling for you, when you pay someone yeah. at sort of a, you know, one of those services that are, you know, of questionable legality, basically to, you know, super level your character. So you'd be level, you know, whatever, 50, 60, 70, whatever it was and how it just completely sucked the fun out of the experience for this person. You know, they paid for this to be done, but they were just sort of running around the world with no challenge and sort of no motivation. And this obviously isn't the same thing. This is more of a, you know, leveling to get to a point. And with Destiny, again, everything I've heard about it is that kind of the game got good, quote unquote, at, you know, when the Taken King sort of expansion came out. And that's kind of what people actually want to play. But it it just kind of brings me to the same place, I guess, mentally. Like, I I just... I have an issue with games that don't respect your time in that way and that, you know, sort of would require that sort of thing to get to the good part. And that maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just me not being a very patient person (laughs) with my games, but it just sort of leaves a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth. I don't, I certainly don't think, oh, it'll ruin video games forever, but it's mm, just, it just kind of gives me that feeling of like, why, why would you, why play if you you know, yeah, that sort you know, of thing. My reaction, it varies from, from game to game. And I think maybe why this doesn't bother me in Destiny is because fundamentally I'm... And mind you, I'm still very new to Destiny. Sure, like, I have sure. only <laughs> I've only spent three complete days of my life uh, playing Destiny from in terms of hours <laughs> played uh, compared to the, uh, you know, uh, you know, hundreds of hours that a lot of other people have, have put Half in. of the Polygon staff were talking about how they've put more than 1200 hours in at this point to Destiny. Yeah. And is, so I can imagine oh that. God. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine that was sort of would, would change your experience, but, uh, but maybe that, but that also testifies to, you know, the, the strength of the game, which is the reason I'm willing to do all that grinding is cause to me, it doesn't feel like a grind, right? Like, what am I doing? I am playing this awesome shooter that has, uh, you know, these just, it's just everything in destiny feels really good. Uh, the, the, the shooting feels really like intangibly good. Like yeah. the weapons feel like precise. Uh, Destiny's really good at making me feel probably like a better player than I really am. Uh, which is, which is quite cleverly done. So I don't really mind playing these missions again and again, cause I'm totally happy that happy to be sitting there on my couch just sort of like plinking headshots with a sweet scout rifle or something like that, uh, or or going on these ridiculous tears, uh, you know, in in like control point matches in in Crucible, uh, where I just sort of get dialed in and I'm like killing people before they even know where they're going. Uh, I'm just like reading their thoughts. I know where they're going to be before <laughs> they do. It's great. Yeah. Uh, but I think my feelings do change quite a bit when I start to feel like what the game is trying to do is keep the good stuff behind some kind of door. Mm. Uh, so, you know, whereas destiny, the minute to minute, that is the good stuff. And I'm, so I'm okay. Like, Oh, you want me to do a lot of that? Okay. I'm, I'm cool with that. Yeah. Uh, where I get a little worried is, is when there's the good stuff is like end game content, right. Or, or it's, or it's like, you know, special, spe- special quest lines or something like new stuff that you want to get to. And then there's a barrier put up. 
that's when it starts to bug me because then you're basically admitting that, okay, the stuff you're doing for 90% of this game, we get it. It, it kind of sucks and you're tired of it. <laughs> Uh, but we're yeah. going to make you do it because you want to get the key to unlock this door to the stuff you really want. Uh, and that's, but that varies a lot from game to game, right? It really depends on how much you enjoy, enjoy the core game. So in destiny, I guess in destiny, it, it doesn't worry, worry me so much. Uh, but I do worry about that becoming a growing trend, uh, you know, ac- across game design, uh, sort of the encroachment yeah. of some of the things that, tend to turn people off of free-to-play, suddenly becoming unavoidable. Yeah, and obviously the the sort of obvious portion about free-to-play games are free, you know, at least at first. You don't have to pay the $60 admission price, you know, to get the good stuff. It, it's sort of that, I don't know, sort of cross-pollination of of the kind of styles that, that also bothers me a little bit. Like, you know, if you paid the full price, you probably should be allowed to play the, you know, quote-unquote good stuff. Yeah, and I and I think like for me certainly one reason that you know part of a lot of my gaming habits are really defined by just give me the stuff I want, right? So yeah. <laughs> I I you know I buy the new games that are full price uh, because I want that game and I don't want to be bothered with with a lot of other stuff and I, I get bored with with games that ask me to repeat a lot of the same stuff again and again uh, just so I can you know make some sort of uh, you know weird sense of progress, but. The, the the question I have though is, I mean, is this is is this an inevitability? Uh, because you know, with Destiny, they're running again. It's an MMO FPS hybrid. It, it there's a lot of players playing Destiny. Uh, it, it's it's a it's a quintessential like game as service. Mm. But the thing is, like Destiny sold really well. Taken King yeah. sold really well. Yeah. Uh, but each each go round. The numbers are probably going to drop a little bit, right? Like it's, they have to, right? Yeah, yeah, because it's just you, you've got a you got a pool of Destiny players, and then with each new big expansion, you're trying to get a fraction of that pool. Uh, and I'm I'm not sure that's going to keep exp- that that pool is going to keep expanding, but we want, but we want Destiny to continue to be this like really, uh, you know, amazing AAA, uh, you know, content rich experience, but. If the you know if if the number of people sort of going from expansion to expansion is sort of on this inevitable trajectory, eventually we don't know when that'll happen, but it will hit a, t- a tipping point. Uh, you know, there, there's the the inevitable answer to that is is eventually uh, you're going to need to introduce a lot more uh, things like this to to make up the difference, right? To new things to sell to yeah. that player base that, that sort of bought in, uh, and I'm not sure I'm not sure that's avoidable and and more more importantly like cross you know across the industry um you know you're 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 kind of looking at a situation where there there's a lot of signs that already like the $60 price for for huge blockbuster blockbuster games isn't is maybe not quite enough right that's why that's why everyone is trying yeah. to figure out a way to upsell you yeah i mean i can't think of any game that came out this year that was a you know big triple a game that doesn't have a season pass and d l c and other things sort of attached to it where you know if you actually want the whole thing you're paying hundred and twenty dollars um you know i I don't know much about budgets, <laughs> but I certainly know that uh nothing about uh sort of triple a gaming has been presented to me as a sustainable <laughs> model basically you know current with the current business practices of the industry so 
I, I think you're right to be a little scared and a little off-put possibly by this uh, and this idea. And I certainly don't know what the answer is to it. But, man, everything to do with Destiny just feels like sort of a microcosm of the entire industry. And in some weird ways, just it just all kind of fits in a way of like, oh, is there a problem in the industry? Well, it'll probably show up in Destiny at some point. <laughs> uh, yeah, but at the same time, like... But but that's the thing, like, and I, and I feel like it was it was easy to sort of write off Destiny as, as sort of this um this thing that typified a lot of gross trends uh, when when it first came out. But, sure, sure. And I was super skeptical, right? Like, there was a part of me that was almost like rubbing my hands with glee, like when I was reading Kirk Hamilton and Jason Trier's <laughs> uh, reports on Kotaku from the front but yet lines of Destiny. They played hundreds of hours of the game, which is funny to me. It's oh, one yeah. of those things, you know. <laughs> But like the 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 weird abusive relationship they had with it in those early yeah. days was was hysterical to me, and I was kind of like, ah, you nerds, like you you got suckered <laughs> into it. You, why can't you break free of this? And now here I am being like, well, just woke up, better see what the dailies are in Destiny, better get those done before I can start work. But at the same time, I totally get now why why everyone's, why everyone's really hooked on it because the thing is, like, Destiny is this really like beautifully. Uh, honed and and polished I- I- experience, like probably more so than ever before. I totally get like why there's this cult around around Bungie, you know, as sure. people who really know how to to, to refine and, and and nail the feel of a game. Because Destiny just is one of the most exciting and satisfying shooters that that I've played in ages. Uh, which is weird because it seems like it's such a simple thing. Your 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 armored space marines, you know, killing <laughs> things endlessly. <laughs> Uh, yeah. and, and yet I can't, I can't break free. So, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dismiss it too much as like Destiny's going to be, D- Destiny's always the canary in the coal mine because it's kind of where all the game, the, the sure. triple A industry sins are being <laughs> dumped. Uh, I, I think I would say give it a try, uh, first. Maybe you can, maybe you can friend me up and, uh, we can, yeah. we, we can play Destiny together. Uh, I would and- try it. But it, but again, I, I've tried it and didn't remember it. But I also say this as someone, you know, I, I'm hearing myself talk here. And I say this as someone who gets a lot of, you know, enrichment in my life out of running around in literal circles. So, you know, who who am I to judge <laughs> what anybody else, you know, enjoys and gets enjoyment out of? Uh, Destiny, I'm sure, is awesome. And I believe you. And uh Maybe you could try Life is Strange. We could we could do a little exchange. What, okay. do, you, what do you say, Rob? So okay, so to people asking why we keep joking about Life is Strange, let me let me peel the curtain back a yeah, little bit. Yeah. Uh that we recorded a few dry run episodes uh before be- we sure before did. we launched the podcast. And there was one point where we were sort of off on this tangent about how this is the year this is the season of obligation where everyone is telling you the games you have to play before yeah. the year ends. Uh, so you can so you can have an informed uh, game of the year discussion, and uh, Life is Strange was the primary culprit I brought up because <laughs> at this point it's kind of like every it's the game that everybody is telling you you have to play. Like, hey, what are, what are some good games I need to play before uh, before I have, before I make my game of the year list? And it just felt like everybody was like, oh, you got you got to play Life is Strange. You just you just have to. Uh, and so at this point, it's it's become like the. The the uh, 2015 game of the year uh, equivalent of a big plate of like boiled vegetables that I should really eat because they're good they're good for me but I just I I, I no I, I can't I can't have it anymore uh, Danielle yes I know that you have also been sort of indulging in uh, in one of your fascinations right now 
we've been we've been talking about Tomb Raider uh, off yes. and on for for a little while. Uh, how is how is the rating of tombs treating you these days? Oh my god, it is. This was my biggest surprise of 2015 that we we're sort of talking about game of the year ish sort of issues. Um, it's one of my favorite games this year, and it's just awesome. It is. It is. I think, frankly, a better reboot for sort of the Tomb Raider series than the 2013 game, which I also thought was really fun and, you know, a really good action-adventure game. But this game actually really feels like Tomb Raider with sort of the new trappings that the uh, the official reboot, I suppose, uh, made. So basically, in this game, you know, you are running around, you're crafting, you're shooting guys, you're hunting, you know, animals, so on and so forth. Um, and you are obviously doing a lot of platforming and some puzzle solving. It's it's sort of the same Tomb Raider that we know and love from 2013. But this time around, they added in a really hefty sort of helping of optional missions called, they're sort of called optional tombs, I believe, uh, that are just puzzles. They're massive caverns and areas with just, just full of puzzles. Not really any combat or any other distractions, but just sort of really fun, really interesting spatial logical puzzles. Is it like Arkham uh, series Riddler stuff? Uh, much better, I think, okay. frankly. You know, the Arkham series stuff I, I've always enjoyed, but a lot of those little uh, bits and pieces felt like just bits and pieces. These I solved are... a lot of them by accident, too. Like, yeah, I just exactly. end up in a place and, like, Riddler would get on the radio and, like, ha-ha, you solved my puzzle. And it's like, it, dude, I, I like... fell off a building. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's like, I, wanted, I just wanted to see what's over this area. It's fine. These are actually specific sort of uh, areas. They're set pieces. You know, one is set in sort of like a a giant ice cavern. One is set in sort of an optional little area in the mountains with sort of these singing uh, weird structures. Really, really cool stuff. And it really harkens back to those original games that were more puzzle-based, at least the sections that were, you know, actually kind of challenging. Now, you know, you don't need to be Mensa- or anything to to figure them out, you know, a little trial and error will go a long way. But they're really, really fun and really satisfying to do, and I'm finding them to be my favorite part of this game. And I, I like the rest of the game as well. The base game is awesome and fun. Uh, it's very well paced. There's a really, really good combination of sort of... Um, it just feels like they kind of nailed the formula. Like, here's some combat. Here's some sort of exploration and crafting. Here's a little bit of light puzzle solving. Here's, you know... X, Y, and Z. It's all wrapped up really nicely. You know, they have the exciting little sort of quick time events that come up every now and then as well. But uh, so yeah, you, I'm just loving the sort of the blend of things and those optional tombs. So you said it felt a little more like Tomb Raider-y uh, yes. than, than, than the 2013 uh, reboot. And I'm just curious, like, so so these are both games that are sort of referring back uh, to this to this previous, previous series. And I'm not even sure they're full reboots, right? Because they're trying to sort of graft it into the existing continuity, right? This is the origin yeah. saga yes. of, of Lara Croft. Uh, what? So, the, so they're both trying to get. They're, they're both trying to communicate something about that old series. But you feel this one is slightly more of an authentic uh, Tomb Raider experience. And I'm curious, like, what? You know, what's what's that X factor, right? Like, what's 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 the heart of, of a Tomb Raider game that this one is bringing out and the other one didn't didn't quite didn't quite manage. I felt in the in the first reboot, you weren't really raiding a whole lot of tombs, <laughs> you know, in in the literal sense. Actually, going into these giant structures where there was some some rich dead guys and a lot of treasure and a lot of you know sort of puzzles to solve, traps to sort of figure out. It just felt lighter on that. And this one feels like 
the developer said, hey, you know what? You know, it was really fun and cool and awesome about those older games was like how much actual sort of raiding of tombs that you did, you know, facetiously, that's the name of the game. But it would be cool if we put 110 more of those into this game and said, you know what, if you are the general audience who doesn't care about puzzle solving, fine, you don't even have to do this. But if you actually really love Tomb Raider for what Tomb Raider used to be, have at it, you know, just enjoy, just just go for it and enjoy your puzzles. And it works really, really well. I mean, I, I can't get enough of these. I'm, I'm hunting down every single little optional tomb that I can find just to see sort of what's next and what little, you know, little baby brain benders I can I can get into. And they're just like off the main path of a level. So like you're just yeah. cruising around and, oh, hey, there's a, there's a tomb here. And then yeah. you raid it. It basically says optional tomb nearby, okay. you know, look around basically. That's that's really clever because that's that's yeah. an example of like how you make I guess how you make a, a, a game that has to sort of be more accessible, but then you have to maintain some aspect of it that was a little inaccessible. Because one thing I, I remember from from that old series is that yes, there was a lot of tomb raiding and there was combat, but I also remember a lot of times where you basically cleared out a level. And then I'd just be running around trying to figure out exactly what the hell I was supposed to do to get past a puzzle. (laughs) And it would get really frustrating, right? Because at a certain point, I'm just like, man, I just want to open the big door so I can go shoot more things with the cool twin pistols. Totally. Uh, And so I can see where, like, you you can't... Maybe you can, but I I suspect there's reasons you you can't necessarily make a Tomb Raider game in that vein anymore. Because a lot of people just want to hear... A lot of people would be showing up for that cool saga of, like... Here's the development of Lara Croft as as a heroine and and sort of the the story of her her perils and, and development. Uh, a lot of people are going to be interested in that sort of more cinematic experience, and it can be a little tough to sort of slam on the brakes repeatedly yeah. and be like, "Hang on, first you got to make this ancient water wheel uh, start turning again, <laughs> yep. and then we'll find out how how Lara saves her, bro- her saves her buddy." Yeah, I mean, and of course, an ancient water wheel is sort of a part of one of the first. <laughs> optional tomb, so it's it's perfect. It's so perfect. Now none they, of them they built are them to last awful. back in those days. Exactly, they really they knew what they were doing then. You know, like ancient architects. It's like seventies audio equipment, right? Like you know, <laughs> right. like years later, like oh, it's a it's a it's a water wheel from the yes. from the fifth century BC. Fantastic, so it'll never oh, break. Still kicking, still protecting that tomb. But uh, <laughs> you know, if you're a spunky twenty two year old with a cool ponytail, you've got what you need figure to, it out. To, get, to get by. Yeah, I, I'm finding them really satisfying, and I'm also really loving sort of the difficulty of those puzzles feels just right for me. And I, I am not uh, by any means a uh, puzzle genius, but any, you know, but I, I enjoy a good puzzle. I like standing there. I like sort of you know figuring out every little tool I have. I, I really enjoy sort of sort of sussing out what those solutions are. So I'm having a great time. Sort of every time I sit down to play Tomb Raider, I love that I get to choose like. You know what? I'm going to go back to an earlier area. I'm just going to look for everything and look for all the, you know, little relics and documents. And or I'll just do some hunting so I can craft some, you know, new gear, you know, more ammo or, or something like that. Or I'll say, you know, I'm going to continue the main story. I'm going to I'm going to do the cinematic ridiculous stuff. I'm going to, you know, sort of swing from ledges and and jump across chasms and do all this stuff. Or you know what? I just feel like playing some puzzles. I'm going to go for those sort of optional tombs. It's it's really nice to be able to do any of those things in a game that is, you know, responsive, controls well, looks yeah. beautiful, 
Uh, it, it just really has kind of all those things that I want in a sort of video game ass video game, if that makes sense. Yeah, just I'm 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 curious. Just tonally speaking, I remember the first game. Leaving aside the sort of torture porn aspects that, yeah, that people sure. brought up with that game, but that first game was supposed to be a real. It was it was kind of a horror movie, right? Where yeah, like totally like Lara is trapped on this nightmare island uh, where everyone's out to kill her. Uh, and it's it's sort of this 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 crucible uh, in in which she's forged. I'm curious is is that same like horror tone uh, present in this one, or has the has it shifted as as her character's relationship with the world has changed? It's it's very much shifted. You know, there's certainly scary situations she finds herself in, but she's so much more powerful now. You know, taking down a room of dudes is kind of nothing to her at this point. You know, she's still there's still the little grunts of pain or, or whatever, you know, but it feels very, very toned down. No, like, slow-mo game. rebar being, no, like, okay. No, my God, that was so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, no, it, the tone feels just right for this. It feels very, you know, Indiana Jones. It feels very breezy okay. adventure. You know, you care about your friends. You care about your relics and artifacts. Uh, the story in this one is, you know, I wouldn't call it, uh, you know, a poetry in motion or anything, but it's, it's a serviceable video game storyline about a character that I care about quite a bit. And I know a lot of people do care about, and it's, it's a little bit of an origin yeah. a continuation of the origin story. You know, she's, she's sort of following in dad's footsteps and trying to find this, you know, long lost MacGuffin kind of thing. And, uh, you know, of course there's bad guys as there always are, <laughs> but it, it works. It works really, really well, I think. Uh, and I think it just, absolutely gets at the core of what was awesome about sort of the original Tomb Raiders, uh, which was sort of the blend of elements and a lot of that puzzle stuff that, that just felt good. And I've been thinking a lot lately because I've been playing this so much. I mean, this is most of what I've been playing sort of the last week. Um, I've been thinking sort of about how, you know, folks talk a lot about sort of reboots and this entire industry is so cluttered, littered with reboots, remakes, remasters, re-everything. Um, it's not always a bad thing. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly, you know, it's an easy thing to say when you're talking well, about Tomb Raider or something like that, but there's been so much lately that's actually been done kind of well that it's making me sort of reevaluate my my stance on sort of reboots equal boring. So on the one hand, I'm really excited uh, by the idea of a new system shock, but I was listening yeah. to Idle Thumbs this weekend, uh, th- this week, and uh, I think it was, I think it was Jake was talking about how this wave of new projects sort of being announced on, on Kickstarter and, and various other means where they're sort of bringing back dead franchises, uh, sort of, you know, the, the in exile model, like want more wasteland, want, you know, want more <laughs> of these, these old games you played, uh, you know, in, in the golden age of, of PC gaming. A lot of it is sort of taking advantage of nostalgia, right? And, and apparently we have a bottomless appetite for having, you know, our childhoods, uh, you know, salvaged. Uh, repackaged and sort of sold back to us, and you know, I I, I see the point, and sometimes I I do worry that we we spend so much time like wanting old series to continue, wanting another of a familiar experience, another version, another iteration of a familiar experience, that we don't always leave enough room for for the new, uh, and I think you definitely see sort of the you know what where this can lead uh when you look at the the movie industry right where sure. where everything yeah. is is sort of a is, is everything is sort of a franchise and the idea of a lot of like a lot of standalone movies for for adults i think has has maybe sort of fallen away 
at least as far as like mainstream uh, blockbusters go. And I wouldn't I wouldn't like to see games head that way, but I think I think the important difference is in, in gaming right now. Uh, a lot of this is being enabled at sort of the the mid level to to indie studio uh, level. These are these are not this is not the equivalent of the um. Oh man, what was that? Uh, this is not the equivalent of the uh, Ben Stiller, Owen Wilson, <laughs> Starsky and Hutch movie that they oh, made God. years and years yeah. ago, where it was like, hey, remember that show from the seventies that everyone loved? <laughs> Here, have it with have it with new actors. This is, I think, much more in general. It's much more authentic, right? These are original creators, sort of coming back and uh, rescuing these these games that the industry, the, the mainstream industry, doesn't have room for anymore. And, and by and large, I'm pretty excited by that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll admit, you know, as I sort of introduced this idea, I, I sort of generally do have a little bit of a knee jerk reaction to reboot or remake, and a little bit of a you know barf face sometimes when I when I think about it. Um, obviously, like what you're saying, it's obviously it's more complicated. It depends who's making it, if they understand the actual intentions of what they're making and what it should be. And maybe that's part of why I was so pleasantly surprised with Tomb Raider with, was that it just, God, it, it, it feels like a better version of what I used to like about those old games. And that that pleases me because it's both nostalgic and it, and it feels like an actual new product, an actual new game that, that feels like something made in 2015, not just a polished version of something made in 1996, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, I'm also of complicated minds, I suppose, because so much of this, you know, in the wider world when it comes to, you know, movies and TV, it's just aiming so squarely at sort of the nerd demographic, basically, you know, sci-fi and horror and and I suppose, you know, some elements of fantasy as well are just ripe for reboot, you know, X-Files, Star Trek reboot, which yeah. I know a lot of people have a lot of feelings about, especially with sort of Into Darkness being a, a not great movie and <laughs> the, you know, the new trailer for Star Trek Beyond being a new thing. I'm going to go see the new Star Wars film tonight, and I've heard really good things about it, but I've also heard complicated feelings about how it really is kind of more of the same in the, the new packaging. Uh, my My concern with it is always that sort of immediate okay nerds like the same thing over and over they just nerds like nerd stuff let's just give them more nerd stuff just throw nerd stuff at the nerds basically and it just feels like a suit chomping on a cigar you know green lighting these projects well, saying hey, you know there was there was this amazing uh simon Pegg wrote this fantastic blog entry uh, yeah. ages ago about how nerd culture is a late capitalist conspiracy <laughs> sure. um and kind of like we'll have to link to it in the uh, in the thread for this podcast. Uh, but in it, basically, he was he was talking about how the, the, there's sort of this dark genius of the entire that, that's that underlies uh, all of nerd culture, right? Which is this idea that somehow, even though you like the most mainstream stuff, uh, <laughs> even though you like the most mainstream stuff that literally everybody has seen, somehow you're kind of a cool outsider for being into this stuff, right? So <laughs> sure. you have people who legitimately think, and I did for years, by the way, I'm not better than this. Like for yeah. years, I was like, man, I'm really into Star Wars. What a weirdo I am. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. And I think that's that's sort of what's underlying a, a lot of nerd culture is this idea that somehow it's the most mainstream thing imaginable, but it it somehow also it feels like you're you're part of a subculture right that you you you're you somehow have found your set you belong among your people yes. uh despite the fact you're in you're in the same lonely crowd that everyone else is yeah it's so very god 
it just it just screams nineties to me. Just sort of <laughs> the sort of idea of like here we are, entertain us. I don't know. It's very God. It's just very 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 funny to me. And I well, and I constantly have to sort of wrestle with this instinct as well. And I God I grew up the same way thinking I was the biggest weirdo in the universe because, you know, I had more Star Wars toys than I had, I don't know, Barbies. I didn't really have any Barbies, to be honest with you. I had Ninja that, Turtles. That's the, probably <laughs> the least shocking thing I've, I've yeah, ever Yeah, I know. I, everybody is so surprised to hear that. Everybody. Stunning. Oh, my God. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. You know, at, at the same time, like... So let's let's talk about these examples though, because like wh- like when when we when we want this stuff brought back, like what do we actually want? Like why are people excited about Star Wars, but people are ready to start burning theaters down uh, when they saw the latest Star Trek trailer uh, this yeah. week, which is I think Star Trek Beyond. Yes, uh, where you even had Will Wheaton uh, just sort of saying like, <laughs> "Boy, this looks like crap." Yeah, uh, like you know what? Like what do what do people want? And then what 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 pisses people off? I have to say, in this particular situation, what I, how I understand it is that Star Trek is a very different product from Star Wars. And I am, a, I am a huge fan of both. I'm probably more of a Trek than a Wars person, but only because of sort of the average quality of, <laughs> of all that is out there across, you know, five TV shows and eight movies, yeah. nine, ten movies, I guess, at this point, whatever, however Lots. many movies, versus six, you know, basically, um, and three of which were horrible. So I, I think a lot of people are very angry because Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, which is the last Star Trek movie, was was pretty terrible uh, in a lot of weird ways. Um, not something that I particularly I, – see, I watched this movie in the midst of the worst and most legally complicated breakup of my life. So, you know, it, it has – No, don't worry. That, that, didn't, that didn't color your impressions it's at all, just, though. Like, it, I'm it here to tell like you. everyone. <laughs> I yeah, watched totally. it. I felt like I was undergoing the worst, most legally complicated <laughs> break of my life. Well, it's totally true because it just kind of ruins so many things in Star Trek canon. And, you know, a lot of people didn't love the 2009 reboot of Star Trek because it, it was basically Star Wars. You know, a fun, rollicking adventure with good guys and bad guys where the Star Trek universe has always been a little bit more morally gray and interesting and a little bit more cerebral. Now, of course, that's sort of the central argument I could point out. 45 episodes that were dumb as dirt, you know, across series of Star Trek that were kind of goofy adventures. But, you know, in the overall swing of things, yeah, Star Trek tended to be a little bit more about uh, uh, its philosophical underpinnings. And Star Wars does tend to be a little bit more about a fun, rollicking adventure. Yeah, I mean, that's that's true. I think, yeah, yeah, whenever whenever you're basically taking... Like I think, I think the the reason like something like Star Trek ended up feeling like a defilement was <laughs> it took these parts of of legitimately great films. Like Wrath yes. of Khan is an amazing movie, uh, and I actually only saw it for the first time a, few, a couple of years ago. Uh, oh, as wow. a matter of fact, and I okay. was like, I I never known that like there was a Star Trek movie out there that was that was that good, like a a thriller and a horror film in, in yes. some ways with like this Shakespearean ending. Uh, but. Into Darkness just took the most famous beats from that movie and repackaged them in a worse form and yep. gave them to you. It was like, hey, remember remember Khan? He sure was scary, wasn't he? And you nerds <laughs> love Benedict Cumberbatch. So here you go. Uh, so It was just a, a poorly made remix, basically, is, is yeah. sort of how I think of it. But, but also, I, I think there is this element of Star Trek was never about... Uh, you can just solve a problem by shooting it to death. 
because uh, a lot of Star Trek at its best is actually a fight for understanding, right? Like yes. I think Picard says it really well in this in this episode of Next Generation uh, called I want to say the first duty, uh, which sure. is where. Uh, the Wesley character, the the sort of bratty kid who grows up on the Enterprise, uh, is in Starfleet Academy and gets involved in some shenanigans that that end up with him in court, uh, you know, on trial for for his career, uh, basically a criminal trial. And Picard figures out he's lying, and Picard gives him this epic dressing down, uh, but but then also tries to explain the ethos of a Starfleet officer, which is really it's kind of the singular ethos in in a lot of like mainstream sci-fi right where yeah. they control these like tremendously powerful warships but uh picard says you know a starfleet officer's first duty is to truth whether that truth be you know scientific uh philosophical or, or yeah, personal it, truth yeah yes uh <laughs> yeah and that that episode just sort of stays with me and it's it's interesting where yeah the, the new star trek series misses the point of all that and it's just like using the the iconography of star trek yeah. without any of the substance and I worry about Star Wars too. And now it, you're seeing it later today, and I'm going yes. to see it at some point this month. But it, it'll be a, it'll be a real test because, like, does J.J. Abrams is he just a great stylist, uh, sort of a counterfeiter, or, or can or can he make uh, great films? Because I'm not sure that latter case has really been proven. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you. And and for my own sanity, I like to think of the Star Trek 2009 as a fun Star Wars movie, basically. That's sort of just, that's where I put it in my brain to keep myself from getting nerd rage every time I, I sort of think about it. <laughs> um, it's It's hard. It's really, really hard. Because, of course, we live in this world where everything is so expensive when we come it comes to these franchises it's not like you can just say hey i'm gonna make a cool star trek movie with you know uh two million dollars like it just doesn't happen that way so it becomes this incredibly commercial balancing act between here are the budgets here's what we need to do for the fans here's what we need to do for toy sales video game sales etc 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 and the point becomes so far removed from what star trek is supposed to be about uh that it you know, it, it's so difficult. And it, it my heart honestly goes out to any creator who, who is in that position to make something worthwhile under those constraints. And, that, and you know, likewise, my heart goes out to people in the game industry who are doing the same thing, basically. Uh, it's It can't be an easy job. It can't be easy to do that. I still want them to do a good job, but it's, it's tricky. I will finally say on reboots... Uh, the, the other thing this month that has really kept me from <laughs> my usual barf reflex when it comes to, you know, sort of reboots, and I've talked about this before, but man, that Hannibal show is so much better than the sort of average of Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal, and Red Dragon that, <laughs> that holy crap, it just, it does such a great job with sort of having a, a dark, beautiful, complicated uh, character and, and storyline that, man, it would be cool and I, and I have heard uh, some, at least some of the creatives from Hannibal talking about doing a Hannibal reboot uh, as a film with uh, Mads Mikkelsen. With the cast the, yes. in the show? Yeah. W- which would be, man, that would be cool. So that would be that would be my vote for, for a reboot I would actually like to see well, as opposed to, to groan about. And, I mean, to an, to an extent, the entire <laughs> se- the existence of that series is kind of retconned, right? Because Oh, totally, like, yeah. you got Manhunter, which is not really a Hannibal movie. But is right. sort of the first one of of the series, uh, and actually, I think it's, it sort of tells a similar story to to Red Dragon. But that so that movie exists separately. 
Silence of the Lambs, I don't think, was ever supposed to be the launch of a new series. It was just supposed to be Silence yeah. of the Lambs. Yeah. Uh, and then you had sort of that Ridley Scott debacle uh, pop up later where basically, the, the I, I swear to God, the idea for, for the movie Hannibal was literally just like, wasn't he awesome? What if we just yep. had two hours of him like stylishly murdering people? Pretty uh, much. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a letter from John here saying, hi, Robin Danielle. I feel for the person in the previous episode who struggled to find balance for work, family, and time for themselves and friends. My solutions, though imperfect, uh, was to focus on hobbies, video games, recording and editing podcasts, etc., that wouldn't require me to leave my house, and then for an hour or two a night, after the family is asleep, slip into my office. It takes away from sleep, but it has allowed me to maintain a sense of self while not sacrificing my family's need for me to be present and responsible. Enjoy the first episode, and we'll keep on listening. Thank you. John from Airdrie, Alberta. Thank you, John. I, I think that's that's totally valid and, and a good idea. Anything that sort of cuts out on time commuting is always a good thing in my book, personally. I, I work from home most days, so I uh, I appreciate that. Um, and and you know, sort of as a as an aside, I also think anytime you can multitask <laughs> with your hobbies, it's always a good idea. I have been sort of trying to get my girlfriend into sort of exercising while playing video games that sort of thing. You know, not everything is perfect. Not everything is a good solution for everyone, but I like that uh, as sort of a awesome little Danielle life hack. I, oh boy. See, I am, I, I don't like multitasking uh, just because I, I I struggle with just the feeling of constantly being distracted and sort of being carved up in these little fractions of attention. Uh, So I think for me, I, I actually tend to look for blocks of time where I can just really focus on something. So like, there's lots of people I know who, like, we'll watch a ton of shows on Netflix, for instance, while mm-hmm. playing games. Like, story-driven games, too. Like, wow. like narrative experiences. And I'm like, why? Like, how? Why would you do that? Like, why on earth? Uh, but I know a lot of that works for a lot of people. It doesn't work uh, for me so much. You know, I, I think this is, this is these are good ideas. Uh, you know, but, but the problem is, it, you know, how much sleep someone needs varies from person to person. Uh, but, yes. but man, it, it no longer takes as long as it used to for it to catch up with me. <laughs> like I remember I, I got through college able to sleep on like four hours. Like I was sleeping on like four hours a night, four or five hours. That's, that's all I needed. I was good to go. Uh, and now like it's a real struggle to, to, to make it through a day if, if I got less than seven. Uh, so it's, oh, yeah. it, it doesn't take too long uh, for, for that to catch up with you. So it's, it, it is it is tough. There there are there's simply not enough uh, hours in the day at times, especially if you're if you're a little a little overworked. Uh, our next email comes from Al. Hi Danielle and Rob. All the talk about Witcher Three made me want to hear your opinions on direction and physical performance. Thinking back on the many many hours I played of that game, most of the scenes that stick in my mind are the ones where Geralt says nothing at all. There's very little voice acting, but they're incredibly emotional moments. And it made me think that the nuance that animators are capable of and required to manipulate seems increasingly crucial to a game's success narratively. What are your thoughts, Al? Oh, man. Uh, I, I love a lot of those little animations in The Witcher, especially, this will sound maybe a little cheesy, but, you know, there's a scene with uh, Geralt and, and Yen, and he, Geralt just has this sly little smile that has stuck in my mind. And, you know, I played this particular scene in, in June or something, and it's still sort of stuck in my mind as like a little, like, yeah, that looks like a, a flirty thing that, you know, somebody might do in real life. And it, it's kind of 
kind of nice to see that. Like, oh yeah, this is this is a, a scene that uh, two grown-ups who have a sense yeah. of humor might, you know, sort of have. I'm not, I'm not spoiling any details or anything like that, but I just really love how much the performances in that game just say, this is like a, a show for grown-ups, or not a show, but like this is a, a piece of entertainment for grown-ups. Grown-ups who care about each other and maybe want to, you know, get it on with each other. <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, a lot of wait, are you are you wait you didn't just reveal you're on Team Yen, did you? I, I am on every team actually. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, I'm not sure that works out as I'm not. I, I think. I, yeah. Well, anyway. It doesn't. Yeah. Every, I'm on team polyamory for Geralt. I, okay. I'm, somehow. <laughs> I, I I think like Witcher two for me sent Witcher Witcher two was was so insistent that like it was it was him and Triss and like sure. that was the 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 woman he was totally in love with that eventually just respected Geralt's preference and totally. was like okay I'm gonna stop having you bang everything possible the way I did in Witcher <laughs> one because uh, clearly you're married. Uh, but yeah. anyway, uh, yeah. Re- regarding this, I, I think. Uh, boy, this is something. It, this is something that I, I don't know, and I'm, I'm curious to, to hear people weigh in. Because where I get a little confused is how much of this work is also being done by actors turning in mocap performances, mm. right? Yeah. So, like, if you look at uh, making of videos from The Last of Us, right, which has some of the most uh, you know amazingly emotive performances, uh, you know, of any game. Uh, that's, that's not like that's not just that's not just animators working. That's that's also actors uh, yeah. really working uh, and and expressing uh, what their characters are feeling. And so, I guess where I always get a little confused now in this era is where the actor's physical performance ends and where the artist's and animator's uh, role begins uh, with a video game. So I'd, I'd be really curious to hear people's thoughts on that, especially if you if you work on games like this because. Uh, I think that is an impo- that is becoming an increasingly important aspect of games, and I'm I'm not always sure who who deserves the credit for it. Uh, and just to talk about The Witcher Three uh, again. What, yeah, one of my favorite little moments was there's there's a point early in the game after uh, Geralt and Triss have finally been uh, reunited, and they're still sort of figure, feeling out uh, where they're at with each other. And I think they're <laughs> They're chasing rats out of a warehouse. Is this completely yep. like bogus quest? <laughs> and yeah. they're just waiting for their traps to uh to, to spring. And they're just hanging out in this warehouse. And they sit down next to each other and start joking around. Their body language slowly changes from the sort of stiff, like, you know, lack of trust, right? There's this there's a stiffness and distance between them. And slowly physically they sort of fall into their old camaraderie and affection. And just watching that transition over that scene, which again is a really quiet scene. They're not really talking about their relationship specifically. They're sort of talking around it. Uh, and yeah, it's just a beautifully captured moment uh, that's that's really carried by uh, the, the way those characters are, are brought to life. Uh, so yeah, I think this is sort of an important topic. I'm just I'm just curious, like you know, who's responsible for these moments because I really don't know. Yeah, I would love to know that as well. Absolutely. We have a question from Olivier in Luxembourg asking us, what games are on our Christmas vacation? I'll give this a shot now as Game of the Year deliberations are away list. Uh, For me, I have two very specifically on my list. It's Ori and the Blind Forest, which I've heard nothing but wonderful things about. It has, you know, clearly beautiful, beautiful, beautiful art direction. And it's a sort of Metroid style game. And I love those kinds of games. And I am also very curious to try the Magic Circle which I don't know that much about, but I've heard really cool things about it. 
Robert, is there anything you, you want to play now that, you know, we've had to play the big things for Game of the Year and now it's time to actually just enjoy sort of what's left? Yeah. So the problem is for for me, Christmas vacation is kind of a, a lousy gaming season because sure. I'm traveling home. Uh, I have to give up my PC. Uh, so it's it's like it's kind of what can run on my laptop. And the answer, you know, isn't all that much. So I'm probably going to end up going back to uh, Sunless Sea or, mm, or something yes. like that. Something that's very laptop friendly. Uh, if I if I had my my druthers, I would uh, probably uh, get all the way into Fallout Four because uh, I just haven't been able to to sink any time into that. Uh, so that's something I would I would really uh, love to get into. And uh, I don't know. I, I was sort of struck by um, a PC gamer choosing uh, Metal Gear Solid Five as their game of the year. That and, was uh, interesting. Yeah, and I mean, like, I was so turned off by Metal Gear Solid Four uh, yeah. that I was like, "Boy, if this is I don't get like I don't get the series at all." Clearly, like, because this this seems like garbage. Uh, but I also gathered that itself was kind of an outlier uh, for, for the series. But Metal Gear Solid Five just sounds uh, like a really tremendous uh, stealth game uh, that that I'm really curious to try and and figure out what this whole Metal Gear thing is all about. Uh, so this email was passed on to us from our sister podcast, Idle Thumbs. Hey, Weekend. The Thumbs were talking a few weeks ago about how Fallout 4 could look if it were transposed to Cold War Russia before talking about Chile's Project Cybersyn and mm-hmm. a theoretical South American alternate history game. Uh, for me, that brought to mind Bioshock Infinite and how its mentality of American exceptionalism could easily be reskinned with contemporaneous British imperialism. Call it Britannia rather than Columbia. Hmm. Uh, See the included picture, which, inc- which resembles Bioshock Infinite concept art to a disturbing degree. The picture, titled Brit- Britannia Pacificatrix, depicting idealized colonized people deferring to a woman, a female personification of Britain. What about other examples? For instance, the Witcher's Eastern European cultural identity replaced by Chinese or Indian. Or, sir, you are being hunted, referring not to eccentric British 60s type TV, but Nigerian, dr- Nigerian dramas, J-horror, or Australian New Wave. Uh, so what games have mechanics entwined with a specific culture and what games merely use a culture as dressing for a more universal game system? Thanks, Daniel. That's a very wow. meaty question. Yes. There, there is a lot to chew on for this. I, particularly uh, reading this email, I, I, I really wanted a, a Witcher 3 set in a, a Chinese or Indian world. That was sort of the first thing I thought of uh, sort of upon you know, taking a look at this email because yeah, I mean, sir, the mythology of that world is so based in sort of Eastern European, but also there's a lot of sort of Gaelic myth, myth rather, and a lot of other sort of interesting bits and pieces from all across Europe in Witcher 3. Mechanically speaking, I'm having a hard time really sort of thinking of a specific example other than the fact that I know just everything is is sort of just drenched in, in the world you live in and, and the things that you make basically. I yeah see I don't think I don't think mechanics really are uh, culturally specific I, I I just don't buy it um, I think the game you end up making can have those mechanics tied to a theme that's very culturally specific but I I think the nature of mechanics is you know they're they're kind of infinitely adaptable uh, depending on your creativity and ability to and ability to sort of uh, match the the right mechanic with the, with the right theme so I I don't think uh, I, I don't think there's I, I, like I'm I'm I have difficulty imagining a game with mechanics that are 
completely like dependent on being a product of a certain culture. Maybe the closest I could come actually is uh, Civilization, which has mm-hmm. this completely like Western myth of progress uh, like idea baked into its DNA. Uh, but again, like could, you could also make Civilization tell a very different sort of story, and, and actually we've seen an example of that uh, with Alpha Centauri, right, where mm-hmm. the, the myth of progress has sort of been turned on its head. Uh, and so you get the same mechanics uh, now telling the story of uh, humanity's sort of fall into dystopia. So even there, I, I, I don't think that's 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 inherent. Um, I think all games kind of use a culture. Is yeah, that's that's where I keep coming back to. It's like that's, <laughs> yeah. that's kind of what they do. Although I'm gonna I'm gonna admit right here that I honestly, when we talk about game mechanics, there are times where I sort of visualize this as there's a ceiling in my head and I come up against it occasionally. You talking about mechanics? I feel like most games mechanically are not ridiculously complicated. Human human beings interacting with a computer system. There's kind of only so much we can do right now. Um, and I, I do have a hard time, I do honestly struggle myself with sort of thinking about what new mechanics actually look like and how they are, you know, sort of envisioned and, and actually put into a system and made into sort of 3D space. And then they have, you know, a controller attached to your hand. That's that's how you sort of interact with them. So I have some difficulty with this sort of just intellectually understanding what mechanics can be. But as they are right now, you know, in 2015, in the games that we play, I, it feels to me like the answer to this question is that, yes, thing, there, there, is, there has to be some kind of cultural component. And maybe that's just being people who play a lot of computer games. We have sort of a, a cultural component to us and sort of our experience. But I, I'm having a really hard time sort of envisioning, like, specific. this specific mechanic would only be made by a culture of, I, I don't know, Orthodox Jewish people or, or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's a little right. bit hard for me to nail that down. What, what I find really enticing though, is just the idea of all these stories that, that could be told that, that, that just don't get told. Yes. Right. Which absolutely. is, I was, I was talking with a friend the other night, like where does fallout uh, go from here? And we sort of tossed like, he, you know, he, he, he wanted to see uh, a fallout set in, in the American South. Right. And yeah. I was sort of interested in the whole, uh, maybe the whole like Seattle up to Vancouver area and sort of touch on sort of the backstory and lore of the, the war with Canada. But even that is still really North American like centric, right? Sure. Uh, and, and I, I it, it, there are a lot of great stories uh, that, that you could, that you could tell with, with these other settings. And I think that's one reason why, you know, games like stalker and the Metro series and Witcher uh, are 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 so enticing, right? Is because they're they're kind of this rare example of games that have all the technical, um, all the technical mastery that we expect from like Western AAA games, mm-hmm. but with a really culturally specific identity. Yes, um, and I think that's what makes them that's what makes them so exciting, and novel, and, and sort of an acquired taste that. Uh, that, that I've always that, that I've always loved, uh, and it would great it would be great to see that sort of expand uh, beyond like you know North America and Europe. Uh, but we, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. And and my last point on this will be this sort of anaanthropy answer, which is that the more kinds of people from the more kinds of backgrounds making games, the more awesome, interesting, fascinating things that we've never seen that we will see. So I always sort of encourage that little blanket statement as well. Awesome. So I think it's time for us to go into our weekend projects. 
Rob, have you been reading, watching, involved in anything super awesome? Oh, man. Uh, No, but I'm going to talk (laughs) about something that... Okay, I need your help, and I need listeners' help, basically, to figure out if I've lost my mind. Uh, this is this is a part of the show where, like, I think in our in our idealized vision of this show, this is where we're we'll talking about, like, oh well, which David Foster Wallace novel are you are you reading? Uh, well, I'm reading, I, I'm reading, or you know, well, I just finished Gravity's Rainbow, and oh, uh, I'm going to Citizen Kane revival. But here's what I've been actually doing uh, this <laughs> this week. Uh, I kind of got a new show called Limitless. Sure. Which is it is literally like the the entire idea behind the show. And I swear to God, somebody actually, like, probably used this phrase when they're pitching it, <laughs> is it's Andy Dwyer from Parks and Rec as a crime-solving super genius. Perfect. Like, they even found an actor that's, like, kind of sounds like him, kind of looks <laughs> like him. Uh, but it's about this kind of, like, the, this kind of ne'er-do-well schlub who, if you know the movie Limitless, uh, there's this pill that sort of uses all the parts of your brain you never use and turns you into a super genius. Okay, Good. so the series yep. starts, <laughs> and it's totally by-the-numbers crap, right? Like, he's sure. kind of in a dead-end life. Uh, he gets the pill. Uh, he turns into a genius and is recruited by the FBI to solve, guess what, a case of the week. Uh, and <laughs> he's paired with a gorgeous female partner who doesn't know what to make of his strange, uh, you know, his, his strange, like, laid-back ways. <laughs> So it started out pretty dire. Like it wasn't it, it wasn't good and like I, I sort of quit watching for a couple weeks. I've gone back and for the last like six or seven episodes, the show has gotten really weird, but in a way that I find really enticing. And I'm not sure it's good, but I feel like it might be good. I'm curious to hear what people think about this. Because the show now is changing style and tone week to week. Uh like direction, editing. Uh, like just basic elements of storytelling. It's completely changing week after week. So one episode was told uh, half in almost cartoon form uh, with animated maps and, and awesome. characters, uh, like like clutch cargo elements tossed in almost. Uh, another episode was basically uh, cribbing Ferris Bueller's day off, like shot for shot uh, and, and trying to make a, make a case of the week that plays out like, um, the, the plays that like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But what's, what's, what's kind of interesting in all of this is it's become one of these shows that I don't know what I'm getting each, each time I tune in. Sure. It's, it's a different experience. Uh, and the other cool thing that's starting to happen is um, there is this element, like the show's really lighthearted and fun, uh, which, which I find really enticing. But there is this other element of <laughs> this guy's character, Brian Finch, is slowly making everyone around him go crazy. And it's sort of for laughs, but but also not. Because you were seeing characters who at the start of the series were super confident and super competent. And like they were trained FBI agents and they all believed, you know, they all they all knew what they knew and uh they they, they trusted in themselves. And now, you know, here halfway through the season, they're all working day after day with this guy who takes a pill and turns into the super genius who's miles ahead of you. Uh, he has reached the end of the conversation before you've, before you've begun it. And it's slowly making all these characters get a little squirrely and start to crumble uh, in these interesting ways. And it's, it's kind of funny, but it's also kind of troubling. 
Uh, and so it's like it is a show that on the one hand is such a, such a trifle. It's so trivial uh, <laughs> that I was I'm like, this can't possibly be good. And yet it has become one of the absolute highlights of my week watching where this show is going to go next. Uh, so I guess that that's my limited endorsement. Uh, I need more people. It's a limited endorsement. <laughs> well, I need I need more people. <laughs> I need more people to sample this. Okay. And let me know whether I've completely lost it uh, or whether the show's truly is like weirdly creative and brilliant as, as I think it might be. Uh, but yeah, so I've, I have somehow got addicted to what looked like one of the lamest shows on TV at the start of this fall. I, okay, seriously, that sounds like something I would love and enjoy, not only for being weird and creative, but the whole, so it, weird thing about me. I used to, uh, I was in a relationship with a woman who was a, uh, sort of a super genius, uh, for a, a chunk of my life for like four years. Right, right. No, there was, we I made Doogie Howser like, jokes. Yeah. yeah. We made a lot of Doogie Howser jokes. I mean, this woman was, you know, 12 when she went to college, 16 when she went to medical school, full doctor by 20, musician, doctor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was kind of hilarious. I genuinely am interested in any entertainment that sort of depicts Normal people's struggles when it comes to understanding a genius in their everyday lives. It's it's sort of a thing that I really always kind of want to read more about or hear more about, even though I'm not in that situation anymore. It's it's sort of a fascinating problem to have. Did you actually. ever find it like confidence affecting? Oh, absolutely, no question. <laughs> I have I have noticed definitely a little bit uh, in my relationship because because my partner is. Uh, also brilliant, uh, sure, probably yeah. probably a fair bit smarter than I am. Not not Doogie Hauser like crazy brilliant, but like <laughs> but you know uh, yeah. par- particle physicist brilliant. Uh, uh, but a, that is amazing. Yes. <laughs> but the thing I have sometimes noticed uh, about that is, uh, it, it's sort of um, what is it? Is it the, the principle, the the Ricardian principle in economics, right? Of like mm. marginal efficiency, where like yes. we can both do the same job, but you're better at it, so I'm gonna yeah. let you do it, and I'll focus on what I'm good at. But the problem is in a relationship like that, the problem is your partner's pretty much better at everything. Yep. And so like I sometimes have to push back against this this uh instinct I have, which is to slowly like defer more and more because well you're probably right. You're 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 smarter than I am or I'll just let you take care of that cuz I'll probably do a crappier job than you would. Uh and I have to constantly like guard against that. Uh yes. cuz I you know, I I I don't want to become this weird like passenger uh in a relationship, but it's it's definitely a weird thing. Uh, where someone is is noticeably faster uh, than you, just repeatedly, and you just sort of have to slowly live with that fact. It is, and it, and it's a really fascinating thing. This particular person, I won't go on and on about this by any means, but this particular person sort of was very modest, at least most of the time, about their abilities, and sort of described it as as sort of feeling like they had a a different sort of size computer or something in, mm-hmm. in the room, that sort of thing. It's it's so weird and so interesting, and yeah, okay, I I want to watch Limitless now. <laughs> I yeah I, okay then yes you need to watch Limitless I need more people to watching Limitless because I yes. need to know if I've lost it so yes everyone watching Limitless get back to me <laughs> that sounds really what good. are you into this week uh, it's really funny that you mentioned uh, you know talking about oh what David Foster Wallace novel are you reading because I am I'm reading a collection of essays from David Foster oh, Wallace God you're right living now. the dream okay I'm sorry you, you, you know you redeemed I'm, I'm me I'm watching Archer too does that make you feel better no because no, Archer's mean, legit great <laughs> no I I know it is it is it's legitimately great. Um, it, it, mainly because I have been reading a lot more sort of pulpy stuff lately, and I felt like I, I needed a little bit of uh, 
something a little bit more, you know, of a, of a challenge, I suppose. I, I, I truly worry. I don't know if this happens to you, Rob, but after I turned 30, I started to seriously worry that I was getting uh, dumber. <laughs> like, genuinely, this is actually something I truly worry about, that my intellectual capacity will diminish if I don't uh, consistently sort of challenge myself yeah. in different ways. Um, and, and not that this is incredibly challenging reading by any means. Um, this is a, both Flesh and Nod is a collection of essays from David Foster Wallace. The, it's sort of headlined uh, by the really famous um, Roger Federer essay that, that he once wrote in, I think, 2006 or so. But most of this book is actually essays he wrote in the 80s, literary criticism and so on. It's, it's wonderful. It's, you know, I read Infinite Jest uh, just this past year, actually last winter, uh, and sort of got hooked on his writing at that point. You know, it's, it's I, I can't do justice to it with my own words, so I will just say it's, it's brilliant. It, it's funny. It is actually fairly accessible, at least if you, if you sort of go slow a little bit. And I am a slow reader, and we'll admit that as well. Uh, but I'm really enjoying sort of uh, using that as my sort of unwinding time. You know, I'm reading a lot of medical stuff for my EMT class. Uh, so when I'm, when I go to bed, I like to read, I like to read something, uh, either fiction or, or, you know, nonfiction that is fairly arresting stuff if that makes sense. And this is really sort of, uh, filling that for me and also making me feel as if I am at least somewhat, uh, uh, feeding some, some of my <laughs> intellectual, uh, abilities so that they don't just, uh, Wither off yeah. and die, basically. Oh no, I, I, I totally get that that fear, and I I, I don't think it's misplaced. Like I, I think what worries me the most is uh, ruts, right? Yes. Like I yes. spend way too much time uh, consuming. Like the writing I read is about games, and yep. I, the writing I'm I'm encountering in fiction is is, ga- is in fiction gaming. Yes. Uh, and there is this fear where <clears throat> you know I remember, you know. I know the kind of things I was able to sort of breeze through in college, right? When I was like yeah. unpacking really dense, like, you know, philosophical works and, uh, you know, political, political science works. And I, I was able to like unpack all that first take and it wasn't too hard. And now I crack open some of these books and I'm like, oh, oh man, yeah. how did I like, how did this used to be second nature? And the answer comes back, well, you weren't spending all your time reading about games. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, to- I totally get that, yep. that fear of like that, that, that fear of decline. And uh, yeah, like pushing pushing outside of it and, and getting away from getting away from the stuff is is good. So uh, I, I should I, I should be doing more of the same rather than shotgunning <laughs> mediocre CBS uh, <laughs> mysteries. Look, there's a there's a place for all of it in our lives. I think it's just it's finding the balance, right? Just finding yeah. that balance. Awesome. Uh, so with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. Please tell a friend. Please tell people about this podcast. We are early on. It's early days. We're still certainly figuring certain things out, Uh, but we would just love it and personally feel very warm and cozy if you would tell friends (laughs) sort of about that. And we want to thank you early listeners for being here for creating us in your ears, for, for indulging us, for listening and sending in questions. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, we love you all. And uh, of course, to keep up with all the latest from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. Cool.
Awesome. All right, let me just hit stop.